This is Hafter Medbo of Copperfly, and you're listening to GMI. Hello and welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute podcast, episode number 37. My name is Jed Brocky, and today I'm in conversation with Hafter Medbo. A leading light of the Edinburgh and Scottish jazz scene, Hafter is a prolific composer, an extremely talented guitarist and an educator. But today I'm going to be talking to him about a wide range of things, including his Norwegian background and his plans for a new record label. If this is the first time you've listened to the GMI podcast, then there's plenty back issues to listen to. And I would encourage you to go and have a browse through some of the amazing people that I've had the privilege to talk to in the other 36 episodes. A huge range of people from guitarists to guitar makers and people involved in the industry. Just by listening to this podcast, you can get 15% of any of the products available to buy from the gmiguitarshop.com. We've got a wide range of products there. Just go pick the products you like and at checkout add the code capital GMI01. Okay, now I'm not going to blether on too much at the beginning, folks. Let's get straight into it and listen to that conversation with composer, educator and guitarist, Hafter Medbo. An Associate Professor of Music and Jazz in residence at Napier University and unlike many of the interviews that I undertake, I'm actually in person with Hafter here in the bowels or near the bowels of Napier University. Hafter, hello. Hello. So, um, yeah, we're here in Napier. What is an associate professor? Um, As someone who hangs around with professors, no. um, It's kind of like, I guess in England they call it a senior lecturer um, uh, and we've moved towards associate professor and it's kind of, it's the rung on the ladder before professorship. Uh, Indeed. And and does, uh, will you be... Are you thinking about becoming a professor? <laughs> well, it's, it's more whether they will uh, have me as a professor than whether I'm thinking about becoming one. Um, you don't I, seem dippy enough to be a professor. Well, I'm getting there. Um, and I've got the elbow pads you know, on the, on the uh, yeah. jacket. Yeah, I've, I've already bought the kit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, obviously my goal is, is at some stage to go for professorship, but there's, there's a, a few hoops to jump first. Uh, what, um, just, <coughs> just for the listeners out there and uh, me in, in particular, what is a professor really? What is a professor? Um, well, I mean, it's somebody who's uh, a leading researcher in their field that's internationally recognised and um, and has an output of, of writing, you know, the, the monographs and journal articles and, and the like. Um, that's something I would definitely want to talk to you about later. Um, mm-hmm. Just for the listeners around the world... Um, Perhaps you would like to give us a little potted history of your life, which is, uh, there's a lot in there. So um, you're you're Norwegian born, but you've made your home in Scotland. Yeah. I mean, I was born in Norway back in 1936, no, 1967. And um, my mother came to Scotland when I was seven. So I didn't really have a a choice in the matter. Um, And so I went to school here and, and I've worked here and... And I've kind of made my career and my friends and, and families and, and all of those kind of things here. Now, I, I see looking through um, all the artists you've worked with, you've you've really have developed or, or, or yeah, developed that Scandinavian link. There's a, a lot of 
in fact, almost exclusively uh, Scandinavian musicians or the people you work with. Uh, is that a, a cry back to your <laughs> homeland in a sense? I, th- I think it's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, my whole PhD was was kind of around those kind of themes of, of belonging and, and identity and, and culture and, and borders and you know, uh, I mean, the, the, the starting point for my PhD was uh, what is a Norwegian guy living in Scotland doing, playing black American music? You know, how, do, how, how does that all square or circle? Um, and I think, I think latterly, I mean, it, it wasn't always the case that I worked with so many Scandinavians. Uh, I used to work with mostly Scottish musicians because the, it was easier because because they're they're in the same neighbourhood. Um, but. I found a kind of, there is a way of thinking about jazz in the Nordic region, you know, um, that, that is slight, that is different. And, and I think at, at one point in my life, I kind of tried to move a little bit away from the American conception of jazz and try and find my own my own understanding of it. And, and it turned out that my own understanding of it was closer to the sort of Nordic understanding than, it, than, than to a British understanding. So it's interesting, I mean, Nordic countries are, um, as a gross generalisation, quite cool, <laughs> not cold. Yeah, well, they're very, good, they're very good at marketing. But I, I, I have heard it said that uh, the music is, is, in a sense, cool or, or cold, and that there's a, uh, pushing the boat out here, um, a sense of uh, being technically incredible, but perhaps lacking in emotion. Yeah, I I think I would argue with that. Um, I mean, now I forget who it was, whether it was Jan Christensen, the Norwegian drummer, in, in an interview, he said, you know, the thing that the thing that that links Norwegian jazz and and and, and American jazz is 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 a sense of the blues. Now, now a Norwegian blues is a very different type of blues to to, to an African American blues, and it comes from a very different place. But there is still that kind of there's a heart and soul to the music. That, that has a, a tinge of sadness, I suppose, in the same way that, that the blues does. Um, and emptiness? Uh, yeah, and emptiness. I mean, I, I guess you can look at, you know, well, journalists like to look at the t- topography of Scandinavia and say, oh, you know, it's all glaciers and, and, and deep lakes and high mountains and fjords, rather, um, not lakes, um, which I think is a little bit facile. Um, and, 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 you know, it's very easy to sort of... Uh, to compare the music to the landscape, but wouldn't that be a, a great? Isn't that the only thing other than climate that really defines us as human beings? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've. I mean, I can give you two little stories about that. One where I, I released an album that was reviewed by a Norwegian paper and and also reviewed by the BBC, and the Norwegian newspaper said, "Oh, well, you know, in this music, you can uh, you can hear the um, the heather and smell the whiskey." And uh, and you know you can see the barren landscape of, of Scotland and and, the, and and look there's a ruined castle in the in the background and and I was like oh really uh, <laughs> and and then the BBC uh, Max Reinhardt the BBC he described it as um, he said uh, it reminds me of driving through downtown Oslo in a in a blizzard you know so I think people ascribe a lot of things to music that. Musicians don't themselves. So they're just projecting. They're projecting, or they're trying to put it. They're trying to make a sense of it. Yeah, um, and obviously with with a name like mine, uh, it's Norwegian. And you know, if if I play gigs here in in Scotland, it's always Norwegian guitarist or Norwegian Scottish based guitarist. I mean, I've lived here since I was seven, so for forty 
many years. Um, I, you know, on one hand, I feel quite Scandinavian still. I'm half Danish, so I, I probably visit Denmark a lot more than I do Norway these days, kind of twice a year probably. So, I mean, I've got links there. And, and there are kind of things that you preserve as an expat, like the way you celebrate Christmas and birthdays and, and that kind of thing. Are you more drawn to Norway or Denmark? Uh, probably more Denmark, actually. I mean, I've spent more time in Denmark. Um, yeah, the interesting thing is I, I actually watched a programme in Norway um, about a year ago. I really didn't know much about the country, uh, other than the, um, it's pretty much like Scotland, um, but it's incredibly rich and Scotland isn't. Um, and of course, in Napier, we have uh, another uh, professional here who who's from Norway. And one thing that came through from that program was the poverty of Norway. And when it did eventually get its independence, so many people left. So, uh, coming back to this emptiness about or, or sadness about the music, do you, is there any way that music can uh, that events can imprint upon a genetic level? The, the the wow the cultural surroundings and that actually transfers itself through the music. I hadn't quite expected this this depth of philosophy. Um, I mean, I dare say there is. Um, I'm not sure that that's what we're talking about with, with Nordic tone or Nordic jazz or whatever you want to call it, um, as distinct from from other European jazz. Um, but it does have its own flavour, doesn't it? It does have its own flavour, but I mean, I, but I think you know from the from I've done a fair amount of research um, and re- done a lot of reading uh, about the topic, and and as I say, most of it is is quite facile in 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 that people like to just peg things and 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 make easy associations. But you know, if you talk to I mean, I remember reading a thing about Edvard Grieg, who's you know he's the sort of national composer of Norway, I suppose, or was, yeah. even though his, his family was from Scotland. It's like, yeah, and he did. He, he, he wrote the Hebrides, you know, sure. Exactly, exactly. And and even in his time, he was, uh, you know, people were saying, oh, but this this music reflects the the landscape of Norway, and he was like, no, it doesn't. That's not why I'm writing it. I'm writing about the human condition, you know, um, not not necessarily related to to where I live or or, or yeah. So, and I, and I think it's the same. I've been uh, talking to Norwegian jazz musicians. You know, that some of them never go up a mountain. You know, they're either in the pub or in the or in the studio. Um, or on tour, you know. So, I think there's a lot of things going on with Norway. One is one is technology. They've always been kind of at the forefront of technologies. Nokia. Uh, no, Nokia's finished. Nokia. But, um, um, but no, I mean in terms of music making, um, they've always been early adopters. And and if you think about you know the thing that defines the ECM label, which which yeah, uh, bring that up. <laughs> which which isn't a Norwegian label, funnily yeah. enough, it's a German label, but. Um, but it's, it's got that stamp of Nordic on it, hasn't it? I mean, he championed that kind of Nordic sound and, and, and in a way curated it, I suppose. So if, you know, if we're going to be really disingenuous, then we could say that, that Nordic tone is a product of, of a Northern German. But so, I mean, you know, what Manfred Eicher of ECM and, and he worked with Jan-Erik Kongshaug, who's, a, who's, a, who's his engineer in Norway. I mean, what they brought was a sort of classical sensibility to, to jazz recording um, because they'd had associations with uh, Deutsche Grammophon before, and and they said, and, and I think they they were of the view that if if 
production levels can be so high for classical music, then why not for jazz? You know, because until then, jazz had always been recorded, you know, around one microphone in a in a smoky room, and and that was kind of part of the American authenticity story on it. And was that really the the big thing about? The whole ECM adventure. Absolutely, absolutely. And and Kongshag, who's sadly sort of very ill now, but he he just uh, he just achieved, um, he just received a, a Norwegian equivalent of a knighthood, and they had you know week long celebration of all of his of all of the records that he's produced. And musicians came from all over Norway and all over the world to to pay homage to the sound that he's created. You know, um, so I think I think you know the sound world that I hear and, and Kongshag and others created that drove musicians to play in a certain way you know, as much as anything else and, and, and then you look at Garbarek you know who's probably the most famous Nor Norwegian musician you know his his roots are in Coltrane and and, and, and latterly in, in um, oh what's his name uh, uh, well in Don Cherry and George Russell you know both of whom were in Scandinavia in the 60s and kind of took him under his, their wing and encouraged him to to make something to make a jazz that was more personal to him. You know, why don't you use Norwegian folk songs? Why are you using American songs? You know, why are you using American show tunes? Yeah? And, and and so that all came out of there. So, you know, yes, I think national culture has something to do with the story, but but it certainly isn't the full story. Pat Metheny uh, famously said not so long ago that he worries that within twenty years the improvised the improvised art form will possibly die out in America. You think it'll be the the Nordic sound will end up uh, conquering the world? <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the thing with Norway in particular, because when you talk about Nordic sound, you are really mostly talking about Norway. There, there There's pockets of it in Sweden and pockets in, in Denmark, but Denmark and Sweden tend to look more to America historically than, than Norway does. Um, uh, certainly in relation to jazz. Uh, I don't think there's a master plan to, uh, to take over jazz culture. Um, Just I, by I, default, I, almost. I mean, I'm interested, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to find out what context Matheny said that in, because I mean, I, I respect him hugely as, as both a, as a composer and a guitarist and as an improviser, and, and I wonder what led him to say that, because it's, it's not my understanding of what's going on at the moment. I, mean, I, th I think there's a lot of improvised music going on. I mean, the boundaries are blurring between genre, which I think is also an excellent thing. Um, and the only thing that's left? Well, the only thing that's left is music. And we don't worry so much about whether we call it jazz or contemporary classical or, you know, because jazz isn't the only music that, that is, you know, that uses improvisation. Um, so... So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with Matheny on that. Uh, and I, uh, well, but to come back to the That'll Nordic be tone, exclusive out there. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've no doubt get a, a, a penned letter from him. <laughs> mm, <maybe laughs> in, in, the of, in the style of Kenny G. Um, yes. um, uh, but I think that, the, you know, the thing about Norway, as you said, they are, they are cash rich. Um, they have the biggest sovereign wealth fund, I think, in, in Europe. And that's all based on oil that was discovered in the mid-60s, which they very cannily um, and, and very responsibly uh, decided to only spend of the interest, uh, which has left them with a huge pension fund, if you like. I, th I, th I mean, I read somewhere, and I don't know whether it's true, so uh, don't quote me. Um, 
but I think I think the story goes that everybody in Norway could stop working for two hundred years, and it wouldn't really make much of a dent on on their economy, which is you know an astounding fact. The other thing is that they've invested a lot in the arts. Um, they spend uh, well under the previous government. Um, it's now gone a little bit to the right, uh, as all of the Scandinavian countries sadly have. Um, if you're that way politically inclined, anyway. Um, and the, but the previous government, which was more socialist, uh, they were aiming for two percent of GDP to be spent on the arts, and, and I mean, it currently stands at one percent of the GDP. Now, it's amazing, isn't it? When you think defence budgets are cut at two percent, yeah, mean, they're huge. Yes. Exactly, and and you know compare that to Scotland, where I I, I believe that it's point two percent of of GDP. That much, yeah. Well, I was surprised as well. But I mean, you know, speaking to Creative Scotland uh, or folks at Creative Scotland, they they said you know even doubling that to point four would allow them to do incredible things. So you can imagine what Norway has going for it there. Um, you know that they can afford to fund touring. So any festival you go to in Europe, you you will find a Norwegian band or two, yeah, because they, their travel's been paid, their hotel's been paid. There's a subsidy probably for the gig fee as well. Yeah, um, their recordings have been paid for by the government um, or subsidised. Yeah, and and this is a great thing, you know. It's a, I mean I I might sound a little bit jealous here. Uh, and what has that has that been impactful upon the lives of Norwegians generally? Do, what is there any evidence? that's looked at that amount of spending, which must be some of the highest in the world. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, generally speaking, well, in my experience, uh, people are more engaged with culture and are healthier as a, as a result. You know, I mean, there are, I mean, there is research on... What's, where does Norway on the happiness scale have to? Oh, uh, I think Denmark always pips them to the post, but uh, Denmark is always the happiest place to live. Um, Maybe because you don't have to walk up and down hills all the time, uh, and it's flat, but and you can cycle everywhere. But but I mean, all the Nordic countries score very high on the happiness scale. I mean, whatever that means. Um, um, and it's not just about money; it's about the value of life. You know, it's a, uh, the the balance between work and 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 and, um, and free time, and between cultural pursuit and and, and technology pursuit. And you know, it, it does seem like the there's a better balance achieved, and it's at government level. But I mean, that said, it's it's what it's what people call big government. I suppose you know they're they're there for every for every step of the way. In fact, my cousin said um, in Denmark, if you fall off your bike, the state catches you. So if so you much never money even hit the pavement, if so much money is being spent on the arts, has that brought the general? Uh, and this is a difficult one because it's all subjective, but the general. Uh, Ability of musicians upwards, absolutely. or do you, do you just have loads and loads of rubbish? No, no, absolutely not. Um, I think you know when you look at what comes out of Norway, which is a country the size of Scotland in terms of population, five million odd. Um, the level of musicianship through the schooling that they have through Trondheim Academy and through the jazz unit at Stavanger and and, and others. Um, and the opportunities that those musicians then have, because I mean that's what makes musicians. It's, it's, it's the kind of gigs that they play, and it's who they're playing with, and where they're playing, and and all of the things that feed in, and the experiences that feed in. Um, I would say that, that of course that, you know, of course that generates a. a, a, a I've, I've got to be careful here. I was going to say a better class of musician, but a more experienced musician certainly. You know. Um, so, 
we've talked a lot about Norway, but we've not mm. really heard much uh, about your work. Now, um, on your website, it says you've recorded five, five albums, but that needs to be updated because, and indeed, yeah. you've got a huge amount of body of work to come out soon. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's it's a little bit wrong actually on my website. I must update that. <laughs> I think it's currently standing at eight. Uh, records that I've released, but um, um, and I've got, and, and as you say, I've, I've got, a, I've got a whole catalogue, a raft of new material just waiting, In, including um, you alluded to earlier work that has been inspired by Norwegian folk song. Well, actually, no. In this case, Danish from the from a small island on the south of Denmark, which is where I kind of spent my formative first years. Um, and I've always had a, a very strong connection with it, um, and I speak the dialect, which is spoken by only about two thousand people, so it's, it's very niche um, and not understood in the rest of Denmark. Um, so I, f- I found these beautiful songs um, that were—I mean, they're, they're musical settings of po- poems by um, a poet called Martin N. Hansen, and it's, a, it's different musicians from the turn of the last century that have, that have put music to them, and we've kind of re. We repackaged them and retold these these stories, if you like, um, in the in jazz language. Uh, um, it's quite sort of uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit Bill Frizzell. It's a little bit kind of Espion Svensson. It's a little bit you know, there's lots of space and 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 a bit of free improv and um, and you know, to be honest, not well. That's not fair. I was going to say not a lot of thought went into it. Actually, a lot of thought did go into. It. We, we we very carefully looked at what the songs were about, you know, what the text was about, and 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 took it very much from a melodic perspective rather than a harmonic perspective, um, to to try and to try and bring a new a new understanding of those old poems to the to the table. And has it garnered much interest? And not yet, because nobody knows about it other than you, um, and, and now your listeners. And the listeners to the show. Well, that, that's um, but it's really, uh, we're releasing it in, it was just recorded back in January here, uh, so last month, um, and it's currently at the pressing plant in Plymouth, uh, and it'll be on general release probably in June. Do you have a favourite place to record, and do you go to gravitate towards any uh, yeah. specific producer? Um <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of my work has been at a studio just outside of Edinburgh in, in, in a place called Penn Caitland, a little town, and it's an old schoolhouse um, that's been convert, converted uh, into something called Castle Sound Studios. Um, and I've done, I think I've done the last three albums in there, but, but this new one we recorded in Copenhagen, partly to keep the cost down because the other two musicians were coming from Oslo and, and one of them lived in Copenhagen. And actually the studios are cheaper there now than they are here. Okay, so uh, will you be actually touring with uh, this work? I will be doing some touring with it. Um, it's quite difficult to tour with the kind of musicians that I'm working with at the moment. I've got two projects on the go that are live, if you like. I'm working with a Swedish piano player called Jakob Carlsson, who's who's marvellous and internationally respected and tours most days of the year already. Um, he's internationally respected and therefore commands a fairly um, healthy fee uh, which I'm quite happy for him to get but it's it's but at the same time without without support uh, it's very difficult to, to, to afford to do the gigs yeah so um, and when we do gigs it, it tends to be weighted in his favor <laughs> um, which I'm which again I'm happy with you know uh, because it's getting the music out there um, 
and with the other one, there's no there's no there's no touring schedule fixed yet, but but we're we're going to be working on that for two thousand twenty uh, or twenty twenty. Well, that brings us a segue neatly in to a project which certainly raised my eyebrows when you spoke to me about it, which in this uh, meltdown scenario we have in the music industry, you're actually launching a record label called Copperfly. Yep. Now that is sounds exciting, it sounds mad. What makes Copperfly different? Well, um, I mean, around 10 years ago, I guess, I started a label just when digital had become kind of the thing. Um, and we still we still made CDs or produced CDs but, and, and embraced digital download and all that kind of thing. And I spent quite a lot of money setting up a website that, that meant that we could have control over our own digital download. Um, what a waste of money that was, um, in hindsight. And, and No one could foresee iTunes no. hoovering everything up. No, exactly. Um, well, I mean, I suppose we could have foreseen it, but I mean, you know, it, it was that... It was the the whole idea of, of maintaining control over your over your stuff, over your intellectual property, and, and that of others. But I mean, you know, we had fun, and we released probably about a dozen albums by by different people, my own stuff, and and, and, and other people's. But Copperfly is not about digital, is it? Copperfly is the opposite. So we now find ourselves in a in a in a different time, and and. I think it's it's the the whole idea. Well, I mean, the CD I think is pretty much dead. <laughs> um, I, I give it give it five years. I don't think CDs will exist, and I've never liked them as a format anyway. I mean, yes, sound wise they're fine, but but the packaging is horrible, and you know those horrible plastic cases that crack as soon as you open them, and and and, and then CDs themselves are are pretty tacky looking. Yeah, you don't feel like you're actually getting something. Do you? No, it feels cheap and plasticky. You know, um, and even if you put it in a digi pack and dress it up, it's still the same muck. Um, and and you know, Apple have now stopped including a CD drive on on their computers or for a few years ago now. And and I think people are swiftly moving away from them. I've certainly put all of my CD collection in the in the attic in the hope that one day it'll be a curiosity for my grandchildren. Um, Watch this, granddad. Yeah, exactly, the wax cylinder equivalent. Um, um, and I think, I think just the point that you made there, you know, that, that you don't feel that you're holding anything with vinyl. Of course, we've always had that. Um, we've always, you know, looked back fondly to, to when you had something that, that had proper cover art, and you could turn it over, and there'd be liner notes, and you could learn something about what you were listening to, and. And, and then just the physical activity of putting putting an album on a turntable and you know cranking it up and well not cranking it up turning it pushing the <laughs> arm button right yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not that old either but, um, <laughs> you know and, and then putting the arm carefully on and, and that, that moment where the needle hits and uh, you know it's, it's all you know it's all terribly romantic now and that sort of coincides with a, 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 with where we're at now where where vinyl is is, is increasing its sales year on year. Um, I mean, that said, it still only accounts for seven percent of the market, so it's, it's niche. But I, I'm certainly, in my own circle, everybody has a turntable now, um, and, and it's, it's even not, if it's USB. Yeah, well, yeah, but people are tending to go for for old school, you know, or or, or you know, a nice Riga planer, or you know, investing well, a bit of money. I remember doing a, a gig at a hi-fi convention in Bristol, and uh, it was just. That was just after having a slip of these coffee, yeah. coffee folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, I couldn't believe it. This this convention, uh, we were playing a, a little gig in it. It was about over eight floors. 
yeah. and it was just crammed. And there was all these guys. Uh, it has to be said mainly in brown corduroy trousers. Uh, with their mums, age 45, <laughs> going around looking at all the stuff. Uh, uh, that that wasn't the, the case, folks, but uh, it was just a, an observation. But um, um, I just couldn't believe how massive hi-fi was, and that was about eight, nine years ago. And, and you know, when you look at the 7% sales figures for vinyl, that doesn't take into account second-hand vinyl, which is a huge market. I mean, here in the UK, we've got Oxfam, who specialise in, in, in second-hand vinyl, and, and you know, all second-hand shops have vinyl in, in, in the back. Now, if you you know if you add that to the equation, I think we might find that vinyl's somewhere around twelve percent. So, what are the plans for Copperfly? Well, the plan is again it's to retain control. So we have a single point of sale, which is the website, or or you know if the artists are gigging, obviously they they're, they're selling at gigs. But so it's not just for you. Uh, uh, currently, it is. Uh, I mean, because I'm kind of testing testing the waters before I before I start throwing money at other things. Um, so I've got three albums that I'm bringing out over the next six months, and the idea is to bring one out every two months. Um, it's a very very sort of conservative business model in the sense that um, that we're, we're we're going for limited edition release, uh, two hundred and fifty limited edition of, of each recording. I mean that that might change depending on the project. But, but certainly we want to keep that limited edition, the exclusivity factor. Um, and, and so in terms of, you know, the profit that can be made on, on each release, it's, it's very limited. But at the moment, you're making nothing. Or uh, I mean, I, I don't know anyone in the jazz world that is making money from digital streaming. Um, you know, maybe 10, 15 quid a year or something like that. So, that much? Well, yeah, you obviously sell more <laughs> streaming than you do. Um, 14.99, I think it was. Um, and, you know, unless you're gigging furiously, um, selling CDs is also very difficult. I mean, nobody buys them for online anymore, really. You think from a marketing perspective, um, the vinyl's a good idea because people just want to have something if they go along to a gig and it's a Absolutely. momentum in a yeah and it's big enough to sign by the artist they like that as well um, funnily enough I was one of the previous um, podcasts was with a, a great guy called Andy Squires he's a singer songwriter mm -hmm. based in Leeds and Andy is doing a great trade in vinyl he uses the CDs just to give away yeah. and but sells vinyl got them made up in Germany uh, the company and uh that's where a lot of people are going now, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I really believe so. And I, and I think, you know, if we can't shift 250 units of each release, then then we're doing something wrong, like horribly wrong. Um, so I'm fairly confident that we can that we can make it work. I mean, the, where I would like where I'd like the model to go is that uh, is that we have a pre-order system, which means that the album is paid for before it even goes to press. So in a way, a little bit like Kickstarter or something like that, but but it, you know it's um, we want people to have trust enough in our brand that they will that they'll say okay I want a copy of the next album I know there's only two hundred and fifty of them I'm going to get in early, um, and 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 hopefully we'll get to a stage where where that's the case, and from an economical point of view, does two hundred and fifty um, presses make economic sense? I mean, I, I don't mind sharing the, the figures at all with, with your listeners. Um, it costs me... Uh, another kind of uh, niche thing about what we're doing is we're, we're releasing on 10-inch vinyl um, rather than traditional 12 or 7-inch. Or, 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 or um, uh, it's a really nice format. It's slightly easier to carry. 
it's got a sort of coffee table vibe to it. Um, uh, it looks really nice. It does mean though that you've only got twenty to twenty three minutes worth of music on on each cut, yeah. Which again is a, is a conscious decision that that you know that there's no filler on on any of the releases. Yeah? It's it's all just like top drawer recording. You know, so if you record an hour's worth of music, you condense it down to twenty minutes. You just take the good stuff. And the other stuff, you know, can be released as bonus tracks on on, on the bundled digital download because we we offer that with the with the vinyl as well. You can you can then go and download it from our site, but from nowhere else. It won't be on Spotify. It won't be on iTunes. It won't be in any of these places. You know what what we I mean the deal that I'll be doing with new artists is that um, that we have the rights over the two hundred and fifty units, but they re- retain the digital rights a hundred percent, and they can release it. On Spotify or wherever they want after a year. Okay. Um, you know, and once we've had a bite of the cherry. And is it cheaper then to go for repressings once you've had your? Um, no, and and we and we don't intend to do repressings. I mean, the whole thing is about you know there are only two hundred and fifty of these in the world, and you either have one or you don't have one. So what are the economics of it then after? So it, you know, I if if we sell all two hundred and fifty, um, we make about fourteen hundred pounds on a release which is very little money but compared to what one might make on cds or certainly on on on, uh digital streaming it's a lot of money so how does that work i I take it you have you been telling other people about copperfly yet or is it really just it's it's very new because i mean technically it's not even launched yet um the first album comes out on the 5th of april um so, uh, and that's that's the one that I've made with Jakob Carlson. Um, What's his name? Uh, it's just called us, you know. Uh, well, I should have called it. It's just called us. Uh, no, it's called After Med by Jakob Carlson. So self-titled, if you like. Right. Um, uh, and it's four original compositions of mine. Um, and then, as I said, the, the the next one in June is going to be uh, with uh, a trio with Gunnar Halle from Norway, trumpet player, and Eva Malling from Copenhagen doing these Danish folk songs. And then the third one is, is a complete sort of left turn or right turn, or, uh, uh, which is a children's jazz album that I've been writing, um, you know, to try and kind of fill the gap of, of, of jazz for kids. And it's aimed at two to five-year-olds, and we're recording it in a week on Saturday with with Scottish musicians. And is that anything to do with the fact that you're a, a newish father? Yeah, it is, but... Uh, but and I think that's brought it back into focus. But I've always wanted to write a, a children's album. You know, I mean, again, there's a sort of tradition of that in Scandinavia that that, that jazz isn't considered some sort of um, cerebral thing for adults only. You know, it, it can also you know kids aren't scared of music in the same way that adults are scared of music. And so you know they're they're more open to, to ideas. So what we've done or what I've done is I've I've written songs about things that two to five year olds um, think about. Um, like getting up and getting dressed and going out and about and having a bath and uh, and all of those kind of things and friends and, and jelly and ice cream and jelly and ice cream and and all of those kind of things and and I've and I've written quite quite simple melodies but with quite sophisticated adult chords if you like yeah? so it's not twelve tone serialism no not 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 at all but that said they're actually remarkably difficult tunes I mean they're kind of written in the nineteen fifties jazz style. Um, or, you know, they've got a lot of bop changes going on underneath it. And, and the melodies, although they sound deceptively easy, they modulate a lot. And, uh, so are you the Carl Starling of the... Uh... 
Who's who's that? I you know, the cartoon music of Tom and Jerry. Oh God, no, 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 nothing <laughs> like that. No. no, much simpler than that. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm really excited about it, and, and we're we're gonna. I mean, I think we're gonna release that one as vinyl. That's certainly the plan at the moment. Um, but we're also gonna release it as a, as a website um, because I've got a, a, an animator working on a kind of standalone thing that features all of the music. So how are you going to get, the, the hardest thing with all these, it all sounds fantastic, but it's getting the message out there. Absolutely. I mean, you know, press is, press is everything uh, for, for us at the moment, uh, because nobody knows who Copperfly is. And in fact, if you type it into Google search, you'll you'll find some fly fishing company in the States um, that, um, <laughs> that isn't us. Um, so I've, you know, for each, for each pressing, we, we, we reserve 50 for press. Uh, so we get we get three hundred pressed and fifty go to press, and then there's an additional hundred go out to press uh, digitally as EPKs. So you know I'm trying to hit a hundred and fifty high quality international press, and the idea is that if they review the work, and 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 we get onto the radar of of of, of audio files and and vinyl vinyl junkies, um, that it'll just take over. Um, obviously. The other way to do it, the other way to shift units is, is is at gigs. Yeah. So for Jakob Carlson and I have two gigs coming up over the summer: one for Glasgow Jazz Festival, one for Edinburgh Jazz Festival, and then we're playing uh, Denmark in 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 the fall. I was going to say all of Denmark. All of Denmark. No, we're no, we're playing a festival in Denmark in, in in the autumn. So you know that's three gigs, and and I reckon we can probably you know shift thirty thirty. Uh, albums per gig you know so that's that's 90 right there and you know I haven't really done a projection on it that, that I can trust but I've been around long enough to know that I think I'm comfortable with the spend it sounds incredibly exciting and I wish you all the best well thank that. you I mean it is exciting and, and at the same time it's, it's kind of frightening uh, <laughs> because because there is a there is a bit of investment up front no uh, I want to talk about uh, yet another thing you you've uh, been spearheading. Uh, right to say that you're heading this up, called SGA, the Scottish Jazz Archive. What's that all about? Anyway? What's that all about? Well, I mean, this has been kind of ticking over for a couple of years. Um, some elderly gentlemen approached me. Five of them. Well, actually, no, there was only three left because two two had passed passed away by the time they got to me. And they were kind of looking for, they were looking for fresh young blood, which was hilarious because I'm 52 so, or 51, um, but it's always nice to be called a young man. Um, and they'd set up uh, an organisation called Edinburgh Jazz Archive, and and it focused very much on on traditional music, uh, on tra traditional jazz in Edinburgh. You know, between kind of the 1950s and the 1970s, um, or 40s and 60s actually. And, you know, I mean, I love my traditional jazz as much as any other flavor of jazz. Um, I don't play it particularly well, but I, I don't mind listening to it. Um, but it's not really my sort of central thing. So I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in, in, in joining and helping the Edinburgh Archive um, and, and bringing it up to date and trying to reflect the whole, the whole breadth of jazz history. But then we got to thinking, and, or I got to thinking, and... and, and and realised that Scotland really isn't a very big place. You know, it's it's Glasgow, it's Edinburgh, and 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 the other cities. You know, Dundee and, and Aberdeen, um, and 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 a little bit of activity in, in 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 rural areas. But for the most part, jazz has happened in Glasgow and Edinburgh. So why not just have a Scottish jazz archive? 
And I think, you know, for me, the, 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 the urgency of setting up an archive is that a lot of that generation that, that, that made the jazz scene what, what it's become now, back in the 1950s and 60s, are getting on, uh, if, if not gone. Uh, and, you know, some, some are suffering from dementia and, and, and the rest of it. And, and if we don't get their stories now, um, nobody's going to remember so it's a case of interviewing these people and having so so the, the so the the center the, uh, the, the what do you call it the, the central the central aim uh, in the first instance of the archive is to is to do an oral histories project with that older generation and capture their stories around which we build a, a kind of digital repository of of photography and text and audio and that relates to their stories yeah, so so we're, we're kind of uh, i guess we're we're letting them tell the history themselves, rather than somebody else imposing their history on them. Perhaps at the cost of sounding insolent, who's going to be interested in this? That's a good. That's that's a, a good question. I, there's a lot of interest in it. Um, there's a, for example, there's a website on or not a website, a, a page, a Facebook page called Lost Edinburgh. I don't know if you're. Yes, I am. It's amazing. It's amazing, and people put up an old photo of. In fact, I saw a photo, the first ever photo the other day they said, mm -hmm. it's 175 years ago, which would make it around 18, what, 30 something. Yeah. And it was three guys getting drunk. Oh, yes, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and apparently the photographer uh, took a photograph the next morning of one of the guys who was getting drunk. Uh, and that's the first ever photograph of someone with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, there's been a few, certainly of me since. Um, um, so, so there is that interest in 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 history generally, and 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 I think what can make an archive, a jazz archive, interesting is if it can intersect with what else was going on at that time. Yeah. So you know the venues, the the pubs. The you know the kind of people that were going, what what the political climate was at the time, you know what what society looked like, um, and that's very much what we're kind of going for, and, and and that's that's where I think the oral histories will really help because they're kind of animated snapshots of history. Yeah. It's it, I remember talking to a Scottish jazz singer called Fiona Duncan. And we've already interviewed her. Yeah, and she told me uh, I don't know if this if she'll have said this, but she she once told me. Um, she went on one of the ferries over to the Isle of Rothsey, I think it was, and she was playing there six days a week. And on the seventh day, this is almost biblical, mm -hmm. they got in a car and they got the ferry back to the mainland and drove up to Wick for a gig. Yeah. And she told me that she was making more money in the 50s in a week than her father was in a, in a um, year. Was it in a year? Yeah, I mean, it was something crazy like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she also told us that in the interview, which you can see on the Scottish Jazz Archive website, uh, it's just scottishjazzarchive.org, um, she talks about when she was playing in the Cavern Club in, in Liverpool and, and the interval band was the Beatles. <laughs> and then, and then she, she goes on to say that one week they went down to play and, and the queue was all the way up the street and she was like, oh, we've got really famous, but it turned out that the Beatles had got really famous. And she said, and that was it for jazz. You know, it was good night. Um, so, I mean, there's all these really interesting stories that, that also intersect with rock history and, you know, popular music history. So I think there's a lot of people that will get a lot of different things out of it. Um, now, one of the great dangers of this project is uh, leaving people out. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, and, but it's going to be very community 
uh, driven. So, so what we what we've done is we've identified sort of interest groups around Scotland who are all feeding in, and and we're not saying no to anything. Uh, in the first instance, we're, everything's going to be everything will relate to the oral histories that we've made. So what is the filter after? I mean, what, what, who decides if someone is a jazz musician or not? Oh, there is no filter. I mean, if, 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 if they're perceived as a jazz musician by anybody, they're a jazz musician. Yeah? Okay. And their contribution might be small or, 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 or great. We're, we're certainly not in the business of curating history, you know, and saying this person may pass and this one may not. Yeah? Because that, you know, that if you look at American jazz history, that's been the kind of that's the uncomfortable part of that history is that there's so many people that were really great players that have been forgotten which you know we're, we're quite happy to put everybody on the same on the same pegging yeah so when will this it's, it's the website's already up um, there's a kind of beta website up yeah. that's not very sophisticated is there any sort of uh, dates that we should Note. Um, not at the not at the moment. I mean, we we continue to sort of trickle trickle feed the website with with, with we've got a lot of materials already that've been donated from far and wide, and, and we're in the process of digitizing things and meta tagging it and um, and trying to you know trying to make sense of the collection. Um, we're in the process also of uh, of setting up as a charity as a charitable organisation, which will allow us to to apply for funding that that I can't as an academic currently access. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that the next year is going to be, you know, the year where things really get started. Because with these kind of things, you need money because you need expertise and, you know, infrastructure. Okay, well, coming to the end, there are a couple of things I just wanted to flag up, which I, I didn't know much about. Uh, the first thing is you have written quite a lot of music for film and television. That's kind of in it's in my past a bit. Um, I mean, I, I I did some stuff for Channel Four and for Turn TV, and uh, and I did a lot of short films. Did you just epic, enjoy but, playing guitar too much? No, do you know what it was? I I found that world didn't understand music in the same way that I understood music, and I got kind of sick of trying to explain myself <laughs> to them. You know, and they all they generally wanted something that sounded like something else. Um, that they couldn't afford, so they wanted me to do it for cheap, and and I got to the point where I thought, well, you know, if it's composition that I love, and I also love playing, then why not just write for my own band? And, uh, and that's kind of that's uh, that satisfied that need in me. So we started the interview off talking about education, or at least the fact we're in an educational establishment, Indeed. and I thought it'd be nice just to end on this which is that you have been working uh, or delivering the Napier Jazz Summer School for into the 23rd year, is that? Yeah, it must be at least that. Um, I, I, to be honest, I've, I've a little bit lost count. It's certainly over 21, and I th it might even be 24 years now. So, um, so that takes place every summer? It takes place every summer in, in, in connection or conjunction with um, the Edinburgh Jazz and Blues Festival, um, who kind of support us, um, and they give us free tickets to, to students each night so that students can go out and actually hear some, hear some proper jazz and then come back and have another go at making it themselves the next day. So what is the format of your summer school? It's a five-day intensive. Um, we keep it very reasonably priced um, uh, to encourage to encourage you know people from all walks of life. It's open to um, 14 years and up. I think the oldest we've had to date has been 82 uh, and it's a really good uh, it's a mix a good mix of age and gender and and nationality and people come from all over the place. Um, how, how long is a day? 
a day is from 10 till 4. Um, we take a break at lunchtime. But, um, but by the Friday, it's a Monday to Friday. On the Friday, they do a gig as part of the jazz festival. And by then, they are wiped out. Um, it's very, you know, it's intensive, but it's, but at the same time, it's very inclusive and it's very fun. Um, and it's really, it's really about enjoying the music rather than, you know, rather than saying that there's a correct way of playing jazz or, or that you must know this in order to qualify as a jazz musician. It's really just, you know, playing with the building blocks of it. Um, and it's changed a lot over the years because it used to be a little bit more kind of, Berkeley-esque or, or, or Ebersold, you know, very kind of, you know, the do's and don'ts of jazz. And now we're, for example, last year we featured, the repertoire that we featured was all written by Scottish musicians, which was really nice. And there was a lot of free playing in there as well and encouraging them to, to you know, just ignore harmony and, and, and modes and scales and, and just make, you know, make texture and, and, and sound. And so it, it's really evolved and, and I think it's a really exciting little school. After it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you, and you've, you've, you're doing so much in your life and you've done so much in your life, it's uh, been great to have you on the GMI podcast. Well, thank you, Jed. Well, that wraps it up for another GMI podcast. What do you think of Hafter's plans for his new record label? Sounds pretty exciting to me. It'd be interesting to see how it goes when you're selling only vinyl. There's no doubt that vinyl sales are going through the roof. I'd just like to thank you for taking the time to listen. Wherever you are in the world, it's great uh, to look at the podcast statistics and see so many listeners from America, Japan, Germany, and of course from throughout the nations of the United Kingdom. It's great to know that people are out there and listening. It helps me ensure that there will be more podcasts coming up. But the very fact that the audience is growing. Please tell others about the GMI podcast and let's get that audience even greater. So until the next podcast, which will be coming your way really soon about something specific to do with guitar or the guitar world, all that remains to be said is for me, Jed Brocky, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.